Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right, so uh, on this Resurrection Sunday, I'm going to begin by posing a question that I want each of us to be asking ourselves. How's my walk with God going? I want you to be asking yourself that question, but more specifically, is the resurrection life that I have in Christ, is it theoretical or is it notional or is it a reality? Right? So is the resurrection life that I have in Christ theoretical? Is it something that the scriptures tell me about? And so I know about it without actually experiencing what a true resurrection life is in practice. Or is it notional? So when I think about the resurrection of Jesus and, and the way that we come into relationship with Jesus, is this for me a nice notion that I can feel good about and cool, I'm going to be raised with Jesus too? Or is the resurrection life that I have in Christ a current reality, something which is a very, has very practical implications in my life? Is the resurrection life that's described here truly a good representation of the amazing transformational experience that I am having in knowing Jesus and walking with him. Now, as I read today's Bible reading, I was reminded again of why the gospel can be so offensive to so many people. Uh, it is so black and white. There are no shades of grey in the gospel. And and in a world that, that seems to name tolerance as its key virtue, uh, the gospel really has no room in that, in that world view because the gospel is truly offensive. By the way, nowhere in the scriptures, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, nowhere is tolerance presented as a virtue that we should have. And, and when it comes to right versus wrong, there are no shades of grey. When it comes to the saved or the unsaved, there are no shades of grey. Being a child of God or, or being an enemy of God, 
There are no shades of grey, nothing in between. When it comes to our eternal destination, whether it's eternal glory with Christ or whether it's being under the, the righteous judgment of God, there are no shades of grey. When, when it comes to the choice of one's religion, there are no shades of grey. Jesus is the only way to God. And there's certainly not a hint of grey to be found in these two verses. They're looking out, out in the audience, there's plenty of grey out there. Um, and probably plenty of grey here, don't you worry about that. But, see, in this Bible reading, there is what we once were and what we now are, two very different things. Um, what we once were as opposed to what we are now because we have been made alive together with Christ Jesus. And so, if there are no shades of grey, theoretical doesn't cut it. And notional doesn't cut it. Having a genuine resurrection life of being raised together with Jesus and all of that entails, there are no shades of grey. So, how is your walk with God going? Now, I suspect an added reason why the gospel can come across as being so offensive to so many folk is our fault. Uh, it's when, as disciples of Jesus, we forget what we once were. You see, if Paul was writing this here, and if he had written it and said, oh, look, you folk, there's, there's all these evil people in the world, but, but you people in the church, you're so wonderful. If he'd said that, that would come across as being really condescending and it'd come across as being quite elitist. And yet that's exactly how some Christians act. Um, so I remember this bloke who used to be in a church that we were a member of. He's a dear old man, but he used to love to tell kids' stories. And, and he used to finish off these children's stories every time with the same words. He'd say, so, children, you need to remember what you've just learned as you go back out into the wicked world. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh, it, it's like we're the chosen holy huddle and the rest of the folk out there, the great unwashed, right? They're the wicked, whereas we're so wonderful. But, but disciples of Jesus are being reminded in this reading we've just read now, we're being reminded over and over and over again that we're no better than anybody else. It is by grace that we are saved, so that no one can boast. And five times in these ten verses, the Apostle Paul uses the words were and once. And each time he uses them, there's a multitude of symptoms that he links with them. Right? So you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we used to do that. That was once us. Before, in God's mercy, before we were saved and entered the resurrection life of Jesus, things were truly stacked against us the way they are stacked against people of the world today. We once used to be controlled and directed by other forces. There were internal forces, there were external forces, and there were supernatural forces at play here. 
we're controlled by what Paul calls the flesh, right? That's, that's the internal sinful nature, our, our own sinful rebellion against God, wanting us to put ourselves before God. And we're controlled by external forces, the world, following the course of this world. And so we, we used to think exactly the same way as what people of the world would think. Our aims were no different to the people of the world's aims. Our goals in life were no different from anybody else's. And we were controlled by spiritual forces, the devil, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, that doesn't mean we we're necessarily possessed by the devil, but forces of evil had an effect on how we would think and what we would do and how would re we would respond to God. And so at one time, this was us. At one time, we were sons of disobedience. Our lives were characterised by disobedience. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what we did. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That means we were doomed to the righteous judgment of God, where he was going to pour out his wrath on us. That was once our fate, the fate of all believers. There are no shades of grey. Before we were saved, before we entered the resurrection life of Jesus, I was no different to anyone else who is a child of wrath today. So I have nothing to boast about, and neither do you. But, I love the word but. You know, when we're reading, reading in the scriptures, there's... We, we, we read these terrible things and, oh, no, we're doomed, but then it has the word but. And not only us, th this is a word which gives hope to all who would surrender their whole life to Jesus and enter his resurrection life. But God, right? You know, so it's not but Michael and it's not but you. It's but God being rich in mercy. But God because of his great love, but God in his immeasurable riches of his grace, but God in kindness. Yeah, some people's picture of God is that he's this big fellow up in the sky who loves to smite people, right? He's just waiting for the opportunity to send the bolt of lightning. Now, when, when my grandpa was starting to get quite old, um, he had this sawn off 22, like what you had back in the day on a farm, and he would load it up with rat shot, and he would walk around his house, opening the cupboards, looking for geckos. This is, this is what he did to, um, to fill in his day or something, I don't know, but, but you'd, you'd go to visit there, and all, there'd be all these little pinholes up in the wall or inside the cupboards, all these little pinholes from the rat shot, and um, woe be tied a gecko. Now, that's, that's basically some people's picture of God. Here he is, this old man, on his search for something to smite. Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, God loves the sinner. Even while we were dead in our transgressions, 
And let's be straight here. This is another black and white thing. We're either spiritually dead or we're spiritually alive. And it's all to be to do with our faith in Christ. Have we given our lives to Jesus and received the forgiveness and mercy that he has given us or haven't we? Now, some people think that being spiritually alive, they're the, they're the people who in church jump up in the air and throw their arms around or, or sing particularly loud or something. They're the spiritually alive and the ones who are, who are quite subdued in their worship, oh, they're, they're the spiritually dead. What a load of rubbish. Being spiritually alive is about what God has done in our hearts. We become alive to him as we are resurrected with Christ. And God loves with a great love even the spiritually dead. It is for the spiritually dead who Jesus died. How much does God love us? While we were still sinners, even while we were spiritually dead, even when we were sons of disobedience and by nature children of wrath, he loved us this much with Jesus' arms stretched out wide, nailed to the cross. Yeah, things were stacked against us and things are stacked against the sons of disobedience today. We once used to be controlled and directed by those other forces, the internal forces, the, the fleshly nature, the external forces, the world and, and all of the cravings that the world would have to offer us and, and the supernatural forces, the spirit of evil doing his darndest to keep us as his children of disobedience. Things were stacked against us. But God, in his rich mercy, but God, because of his great love, but God, with his immeasurable riches of grace, but God, in kindness, while we we're totally opposed to God, he made us alive together with Christ. And this, my friends, this is the hope and the glory of the resurrection. Now, there might be someone here sitting thinking, Hang on a minute, Michael. I know things are black and white, but you're sort of painting things a bit extreme here. Um, you know, you're painting this picture as if everyone who isn't a Christian is totally corrupt and evil. But I can't agree with that because, you know what, the, the picture of evil that you're painting, not, not everyone is like that. Now, if there's anyone sitting here thinking that um, I've painted it too black and white... Phew, I've done my job thoroughly. Um, because this is what this scripture is saying. It is extremely black and white. And this is why. You know, we, we generally tend to think that some sins are worse than others, don't we? In some ways, they are. Do you know what the worst sin is? It's the pride that keeps us from surrendering our lives to Jesus. That's the sin that stops us from being forgiven. Does anyone here play cards? Come, show hands. Anyone play cards? Four of you play. You, you four can get together and play later. Okay, does anyone play 500? Who likes 500? More like 500 than what play cards. Sounds like we'd need to play 500 more often. Okay. One day... I like playing cards. 
Did you put your hand up, Robin? Did you? Oh, you did. Oh, good. Phew. Um, one day I was playing 500, and by the way, Robin hates it when someone goes Mazaire in playing 500. Does anyone else hate Mazaire? Yeah. I think it's because she would never go Mazaire, but I'm often her partner. And, and you know what? For me, if I can turn a losing hand into a winning hand, I'm very happy with that. And um, so I'll go Mazaire reasonably often, knowing, of course, that my wife has to sit on the sidelines and grumble the whole time. Now, there was this one time where I got this terrible hand, and not all terrible hands are good Mazaire hands, but this one was. Like, this was like the best Mazaire hand that you could ever think of. I thought, whew, yeah, I know what I'm doing this time. And so I called Mazaire, and nobody else went against it, and okay. And so then I took up the kitty, and it helped a little bit too. I thought, oh yeah, there's a couple of cards I can get rid of there. And I looked at my hand after that, and I went, you know what? If, as long as I play this right, there is no way that they can beat me. Like, I was supremely confident, would be the word. And so I looked at my hand, and, and the thing is, with Mazaire, you have to lose every trick, right? So if you know you can't win enough, you call Mazaire, and you can lose every trick, and then you win the hand, right? And, and you win a fair few points because of it. And part of my sinful nature, I suppose, was I started skiding. And look, there is no way that you lot can beat me. You might as well give up now. And um, anyway, and as we proceeded through the game, I was sort of getting towards the end. I thought, this has just gone completely according to plan. And um, yep, this is all good. And then I looked and I thought, you've got four cards. I've only got three. Everybody's only got four cards. Why have I only got three? And there was one card stuck behind the other. And I sort of spread it apart a bit. Anyone want to guess what that card was? It was the Joker. <laughs> it was the Joker. Now, those who understand 500, that the Joker wins every trick. Like, no matter what it's played, the Joker's going to win. So, if I had the Joker, I just couldn't possibly win Mazaire. And the thing is, I could have got rid of the It's been in my hand the whole time. And I could have got rid of it with the kitty. Now, the, the relevance of that will come clear shortly. Uh, <laughs> when we talked last week about the difference, we talked about the difference between having a clear conscience and a good conscience. Right? So a clear conscience means that by my standard, I feel I've done everything well. Right? Whereas a good conscience is a conscience which is calibrated to the true standard of good, which is God's standard. And keeping God's standard, it isn't a matter, multi, a matter of multiple choice, and it doesn't come with a 50% pass mark. So if I, if I manage to be able to achieve you know, five out of the 10 commandments or keep them 50% of the time, I'm good to go. That, that just doesn't cut it. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Of these two sorry, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, right? So no matter how good 
by my own conscience, I believe I am, if I have a pride that causes me to reject Jesus, if I do not love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind, that's like playing Mazaire with a joker in my hand. I cannot win. No matter how good I think I can be in all, all other areas of life, if I don't love God with all of my heart, soul and mind, I can't win. I'm a son of disobedience. But God, but God being rich in mercy, but God because of his great love, but God in the immeasurable riches of his grace, but God in kindness, even while we were totally opposed to God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. We get a taste of being saved now. The resurrection life of Christ we enter into now. The fullness is yet to come, but we enter it now. He has raised us up now. He has situated us with the risen Christ now. Even though we're still in our physical bodies, our future with Christ is so assured, Paul speaks of it as if it's already happened. He has raised us up with him. Now, is that a reality for you? Or is it theoretical? Or is it notional? You see, when we were dead in trespasses in sin, that's what we walked in. We walked in trespasses in sin. Now that we've been raised with Christ, everything changes. We're no longer what we once were. This is what the resurrection does for us and to us. We no longer walk in trespasses and sin. We now walk in good works. We, no, we are no longer sons of disobedience. We're now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We're no longer children of wrath. We've been saved by grace. And this is chalk and cheese stuff, black and white. And the more we realise what, what God has saved us from, when we realise the perilous condition that we were once in, this magnifies God's wondrous mercy that he's shown to us. Now Jesus once said, he who has forgiven a little, loves little. But when we reflect on, on what Paul's telling us here, we, we all of a sudden realise just how much we have been forgiven. We've been forgiven a lot. That means we love a lot. So, is a resurrection life I have in Christ theoretical? Is it something that the scriptures say and so I know about it without actually experiencing what a true resurrection life is? A life filled with love. A life lived out in righteousness. A life of, of worshipping our Lord because we're filled with thanks to him. Or is it notional? 
So when I think about the resurrection of Jesus and, and the way we come into relationship with Jesus, is it for me a nice notion? And so I might praise God on the odd occasion, but it really doesn't affect my whole life that much. Or is it a reality? Is the resurrection life that's being described here truly a good representation of the amazing transforming experience that I am having and living in knowing Jesus and walking with him? Happy Easter, everyone. Let's pray. Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, we praise you for your amazing power that has raised Christ from the dead. And Lord, we praise you for your rich mercy and your great love and the immeasurable riches of your grace and for your kindness. Lord, we praise you that you have made us alive together with Christ. Lord, for some of us, this has been theoretical. For some of us, it's been notional. But Lord, from today on, may we truly reflect the resurrected life in Christ that you've given us to your glory. Amen.